0: Well, as many of you know, I am the son of a theologian and Bible scholar, uh, respected by some, derided by others. I grew up listening to my parents have lots of theological conversations around the dinner table with students and pastors from all over the world. I found those conversations boring. I would secretly hope that the topic would change to something more interesting to me at the time as a a kid and a teenager, something maybe about sports or movies. But I would often just sit there and listen since my mom didn't let me watch much TV. But then I went off to college. I didn't have to sit through those boring theological conversations anymore. And yet I found that sports, movies, Friends, girls, grades, they weren't all that they were cracked up to be. So at the start of my sophomore year, I found myself, to my surprise, leading a Bible study of freshman guys in my dorm. And I quickly realized something. I wish I would have paid a little more attention to those theological and Bible discussions around the table because those freshman guys started asking me some tough Bible questions. And I didn't know the answers. But I knew someone who did. This morning, we begin a three-week sermon series in the book of Job. Not job, but Job. The book of Job raises many questions. And it doesn't always provide satisfactory answers uh, that we would want. If you know anything about the book of Job kind of caught on to some of the themes of the service already. The book of Job is known uh, as a book about suffering. But when it comes to the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, we're kind of left without clear answers. Uh, Job does something better than answer the problem of evil, than answer life's most difficult questions it introduces us to someone who has the answers. Job gives us a vision of God in our suffering. So suffering is merely the context of the book of Job. I really like how Tim Keller, a well-known Christian author, puts it. He said, Job never saw why he suffered, but he saw God, and that was enough. So the goal of our sermon series over the next three weeks is not to finally understand why we suffer. Our goal is to see God. That is what we need most in suffering, a vision of God. We need a vision and a relationship with God and praise God for how he has provided that in his son. Because in Jesus, we see how God treats his friends. If this is how he treats his son, This is how he'll treat his friends. So I'd invite you to open up your Bibles now to the book of Job. You'll find it right before the book of Psalms. If you're using the black pew Bibles that we've provided, which I'd encourage you to do if you don't have a Bible on you today, you can find it on page 440, 440, the book of Job. We're just going to be walking through the first two chapters this morning and uh, pray for us all next week as we walk through like 30 chapters in one sermon. So Job chapter 1, Job 1 and 2 raises a difficult question. Who knows why God allows suffering? Who knows why God allows suffering? And we will see in Job 1 and 2 that Job, at least, trusts the who rather than the why. Who knows why God allows suffering? Job trusts the who rather than the why. Again, we're going to walk through these first two chapters of Job, which is known as the prologue, in three parts. So a three point sermon as we consider who knows why God allows suffering. First, part one, a good man. Good job, one, one through five. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Well, a good man is hard to find, but here in the land of Uz, we find Job. We don't know a lot about Job or the land of Uz. We know Uz is outside of Israel, but we don't really know um, when this book was written We don't know uh, who wrote the book. There's a ton we don't know. But what is most important in these opening verses is Job's character. Uh, Did you see that he's a man of complete integrity? That's the first thing that the author wants to highlight, Job's character. He's not a hypocrite. What you see is what you get with Job. He fears God. What does that mean? Well, Job is a wise man, according to Proverbs The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. He's turning away from evil. So he's living a life of repentance, of reverence towards God, his judge. He's worshiping God, his creator. And we're going to see in the following verses and the following weeks what it looks like for Job to fear God. But for now, we need to establish in our minds, this is who Job is. This is who he is on the inside. He He doesn't do good things in order to be who he is, but he does good things because this is who Job is. So Job's fear of God leads him in verses four and five, or particularly verse five, to be conscientious for the souls of his children. Uh, Just like godly parents will regularly pray for the salvation of their kids. We have Job offering burnt offerings for all his kids, uh, 10 animals slaughtered after each party, a sacrifice, a reminder of the holiness of God, and that we're all guilty before him, even for sin in our hearts. It's not just bad things that we do, but things that are wrong inside. Uh, we don't know where Job like learned of the sacrificial system or what he, why he thinks he can intercede for his kids in this way, but this is what he does. By the way, scholars do estimate that Job probably lived around the time of Abraham. So we're talking like 20th century BC. Uh, that might be helpful as we to know as we walk through the verses later on. But Job's not only a good man, Job's a great man. Look at verses 2 through 4. Or particularly verses two and three. We learn that Job is a great man. He's like Adam in Eden before the curse. He's prosperous. He's hashtag blessed. He's living the good life. He's like an ancient Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos in some ways. He's, uh, he's rolling in it. He's got 10 kids, which is a great biblical number. Seven sons, three daughters. Again, great numbers. This is like he has got the perfect family. Uh, he's prosperous. He's got it made. Uh, he can even take a show on the road with all these camels if he wants. You know, as we just consider briefly this this portrait of Job in just these short verses, uh, I think it's 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 interesting to think about ourselves. Uh, most of us want to be good, like we want to be good people, but we daydream and we fantasize about being great. How often do you fantasize about being rich? If only I had just a little more money, I could afford this or that. How often do you daydream about having that perfect, happy family? You know, there are a lot of self-help books and, uh, and shows and things that we can read and things that we can do so that we can become happier, richer, more successful. We want to know that stuff. We're like, what's the, what's the secret? I wonder what Job's secret was. How do you get so successful? But then what we see in verses 1 and verses, verse 5 about Job, we kind of yawn. Oh yeah, that's a, that's good. He's He's a godly guy. Good for him. You know, think about what sermon series or what you would be more interested in hearing about. How to be happy and rich or how to fear God. Which one would you prefer? You know, much of the time I think we're more interested, if we're honest, in pleasure, comfort, ease. Personal happiness than we are about having a right relationship with God. Would I rather be known as a dynamic leader, a gifted preacher, or as a godly man? Much too often, I think I'd rather have the gifts than the character. Think, you know, I could, I can work on the character. That's on the inside. I can work hard, be religious, do that. And let's be honest, when it comes to like preachers and leaders, most of us are looking, most churches are looking for the gifted man rather than the godly man. Women, what do you truly value in yourself and in other women? What is on the outside? Beauty, style, personality, success, being connected to the right people, having the perfect family. Or do you value what's on the inside? it's in the heart. First Peter, the chapter just right before where Ben read earlier says, what is great worth in God's sight is the quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, godly character. So just as we see this portrait of Job, I think as a church, we should be challenged to pray as a church that like Job, the most important thing about us would be that we fear God and turn away from evil. If you are more taken with the gifts than with the godly character, ask God to humble you. Confess your worldliness to God. Confess your worldliness to maybe another church member. And let's creatively conspire how to encourage one another, not just for the giftedness that we see, it's a a fine thing to do, to encourage people for the gifts that God has given them, but encourage godly and humble character, a fear of God, a love of God, and turning away from evil. Because it's our character that reveals what God is like. And we're about to see that in a hurry in Job's life. The gifts come and go. The family can come and go. But fear of God and repentance. That's what where we really see God in action. So God, Job is a good man. Yes, he's great due to his prosperity, but really what defines Job is his fear of God and his turning away from evil. So here's the opening scene, verses one through five. And now we have the camera fade and pan out. And we enter heaven's courtroom to consider For one, a terrible adversary. So that brings us to point two, part two in our story, a terrible adversary. Look at verse six. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming around through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Notice that the Lord doesn't even mention Job's gifts. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Well, the entire book of Job turns on that question that Satan asks the Lord in verse nine. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan is insinuating that Job is in it for the money. He thinks Job is a fair-weather believer. Satan's name literally means adversary. But is Satan being adversarial merely to Job? Look at verse 10. Notice how Satan's accusations are pointed towards God. You, you have placed a hedge around him. You have blessed the work of his hands. Satan is suggesting that Job is using God. Satan is seeking to put a wedge between Job and God. You know, imagine someone suggesting to your partner that they're only with you because of your money or because something besides who you really are. It seems like Satan has set a trap for God and by consequence, a trap for Job. You know, because God is God. We expect Satan to just or God to dismiss Satan out of hand. After all, the Lord knows Job's heart. Uh, surely he isn't fazed by Satan's accusations. But to our horror, in verse 12, the Lord accepts Satan's challenge. It says, game on. Okay. Now, I admit, this heavenly scene, if like we don't know very much about Job in verses one through five. Like, we don't know a lot about what's going on here. There are so many questions that not even my dad knows the answers to. Um, what does, like, like, what does the Lord have to prove to Satan? And is this how, like, the Lord makes decisions about our lives? Who are these sons of God? Why is Satan there? I mean, so many questions. Uh, but more importantly, it raises a question like, does God even care about us? doesn't seem to care about Job. Seems seems like they're just making some heavenly wager. Uh, With this very well that the Lord speaks very well, he says to Satan, everything he has is in your power. He knows Satan's character. He's not like surprised. We have the judge of all the earth giving the villain permission to take a wrecking ball to Job's life and all that he loves and all that he owns. So look, look with me at what happens next after this conversation between the Lord and Satan, starting in verse 13. On another day, one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them. And I alone have escaped to tell you the messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they had died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's like something out of a horrible movie. But truth is often stranger than fiction. You know, just ask families in Ukraine who, with one airstrike, lose everything in a moment, or people nearby or closer by in Florida, who after Hurricane Ian lost everything. Here is the result of God's words to Satan. Very well, everything he owns is in your power. Job goes bankrupt and he loses all 10 of his children in a single day. Job has gone from riches to rags. It's no retirement, no pension no purrs, he'll be destitute for the rest of his life. Job was in the prime of his life in verses one through five, but here by verse 19, he's broke, bereft, and busted. Who's responsible? Who is to blame for Job's calamity? You know, earlier I asked, does God even care about us? Does God care about Job? If we look at Job 1, It doesn't seem like he does. Job has lost everything. And his suffering is just beginning. Let's look at stage two of Job's suffering, starting in chapter two, verse one. One day, the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also went with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him, to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well. Lord's told Satan. He is in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. You know, we would think that the Lord would say to Satan, you know, you've had your fun. Enough is enough. Job's a ruined man. It's over. But that's Now what happens? Job is afflicted with boils from head to toe. Satan takes Job's health. So Job goes outside the city to the dung pile where they burned the dung. And he scrapes his sin in misery. How do we make sense of this? How do we explain this? Not far from where I went to high school in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, there was a bus crash where several children and teens died. And my sophomore history teacher, Mrs. Nelson from Alabama, invited in a seminary student to come speak to our class to help us make sense of the tragedy. The seminary student told us that God had nothing to do with the accident. That the seminary student told us, that this accident was clearly the work of Satan. That student wasn't all wrong. In some way, the work of the adversary is behind all sin, death, suffering, wickedness. I mean, it sure doesn't, you understand where that student's coming from, it sure doesn't make sense that calamity and evil could come from the hands of a loving God. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, how could God have been involved in that bus accident in any way? It's so much tidier to lay the evil at the feet of the bad guy. But we have a problem. You heard the text. God is the one who gave Satan permission to ruin Job's life. God lets the bad guy have his way. The only thing that God kind of tells Satan is don't kill him, which honestly, Job wanted to die. He would have loved that. So who's Job's adversary, really? God or Satan? Job didn't do anything to deserve this. We read the opening lines. And yet, because of some heavenly wager, Job is left literally And boils and ashes. It doesn't seem right. So, how do we make sense of evil and suffering in our world? You know, maybe you're someone here this morning and you're thinking, this sounds totally made up. And I'm sympathetic to that perspective. These heavenly scenes that I read in chapter one and chapter two, they're literally out of this world. It would make sense for a belief system, kind of like in mythology to invent a bad guy, to make sense of the evil and wickedness in the world. This is what good stories do. But if this is just a made-up story, why is God left on the hook for ultimate responsibility? Isn't that what we saw in the text? Who's the real adversary here? In an ironic kind of way, these exchanges between God and Satan should give us hope. Satan has real power. He is evil. He uses his power to destroy and to kill. But Satan can't do jack squat apart from God's permission. Apart from God's sovereign will. God is still the judge. And Satan somehow has this mysterious ministry of evil that falls under the mysterious wisdom of our God. Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. He's on a short leash. He has this ministry of evil, but God is in control. And Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Come down to our experience, though, and it just seems random. It seems like no good reason. But maybe the judge of all the earth, does have a reason. Maybe he has a reason as he tells us in his word for for everything, for every stub toe, for every traffic jam, for every bus accident, and for every death. The world is not spinning out of control with Satan on the loose. Satan is on a short leash and God is on his throne. So while it feels like in our, in our pain and suffering that God is our terrible adversary at times, that's how Job is going to feel As we, if you come back next week. Seems like things are spiraling out of control. But God is playing Satan for a greater purpose than we could ever imagine. I wonder if this is maybe a different God than you have thought of in the past. God is different than the way that we often imagine him to be. His ways leave us with many questions unanswered. And we can continue to ask those questions, but maybe the point is not to have all our questions answered, but to know how to respond to him, even while we are left in mystery. You know, we can make accusations of God like, like Satan does or we can respond another way because the problem of suffering isn't finally what the book of Job is all about. That brings us to, finally to part three, a wise response. How does Job respond in suffering? Let's go back to chapter one, verse 20. Then Job stood up tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship saying, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Again, this is Job's first recorded response after losing everything. Back up in chapter one, his possessions, his servants, His children. What does Job do? He worships. Job doesn't blame Satan, he doesn't blame himself. And look again at verse 22. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything, he holds God responsible. But God is not blamed. Instead of finding fault with God, Job worships. You know, Satan, as we remember from the question in chapter 1, verse 9, accused Job of being a faker. Now God's servant has vindicated his master. Job passes the first test and God is glorified. So let's look now at how Job does when Satan infects Job's body with these terrible sores from head to foot. So look at Job's response in chapter 2, verse 9. Job's wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. I think we should be really sympathetic to Job's wife here. Job's wife has had enough. Remember, she is suffering too. She has also lost all her children. And Job, in the next chapter, in chapter three, we'll see that he'll not only wish that he was dead, but that he had never existed, that he had been, or that he had been stillborn. But what still characterizes Job remarkably is his complete integrity. He continues to fear God and live wisely in God's world, even when God blows up his world. Now, Job's wife obviously isn't very comforting here, and we we understand that. But at least we're going to see here, Job's got some friends on the way. So some friends are are traveling. they got some plans to come together to try to comfort Job. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. We need to introduce Job's three friends. Now, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temnite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him, each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. Now it's kind of hard actually to know what to make of Job's three friends here. On one hand, we don't want people like lecturing us when we're in the midst of suffering. So we're like, oh, good job. They they sat with him. They mourned with him. They're present with him. Um, and maybe Job appreciates that after all he's been through. On the other hand, like seven days is a long time just to be silent when you're, when your friend is really suffering. And we'll see God willing, next week that these, these friends, as soon as they open their mouth, uh, not a comfort at all. And they make Job's suffering actually way worse. So Job isn't getting much help in his hour of need. His wife isn't helping. His, his friends may have helped a little bit here, but then they're going to make his life miserable. And all this makes, sets the backdrop again for Job's response. When Job is tested, he doesn't break. I'm old enough to remember when uh, music CDs came out, and the rumor was that as opposed to cassette tapes, they were way more durable and they wouldn't even break. Um, so I remember testing that on my first, uh, was probably my dad's CDs, um, and it broke rather easily. Did not live up to the hype. I wonder, are we CDs under pressure? When God exerts some pressure, some heat in your life, who are you? More importantly, who is your God? You know, Job wasn't a good man because he had great faith. Job was a good man because he had a great God. Did he understand why God would allow the suffering? No. Did he like what God had done to him? course not. But Job seems to understand at least here that God wouldn't be God if everything he did always made sense to us. Here at the end of these opening chapters, we're left with many questions and hardly any answers. Welcome to a world where our creator and judge calls us to live by faith And not by sight. Wisdom is not knowing the answers to why God does what he does and allows what he does. The beginning of wisdom in this cursed world is the fear of the Lord, it is revering his name and trusting him, come what may. This is not a book about suffering. This is a book about the vindication and the glory of God. And ironically, if we can get that, that's what's going to help us through suffering. Friends, if this were just an ancient story about a guy named Job way back when, long ago and far away, not cracking under pressure. Look at Job. Yay, Job. Continue, continuing to worship God. If that's all it was, you know, I don't, I don't think this story would have struck me that much this week. But as I thought about Job, I couldn't help but think of many of you. I couldn't help to think of how I have seen so many of you suffer. I have I have been there and seen your tears when you have said goodbye to loved ones as you have struggled through the darkness. I've seen your faces in life's trials. And in the midst of that, I've seen you worship. Yes, I've seen I've been encouraged by your faith as I've seen you sing praise to the Lord week after week and, and hear you sing his praises, that our God is God who gives and he takes away, and you sing in faith, even if you don't feel it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But even more than that, you have made this story, uh, given me a plausible structure for believing that this is true, that this can be true because you have remained steadfast like Job. You have persevered through the trials and in your faith. You have said with your lives, instead of cursing God, God is good and I know he will carry me home. I've seen you place your hope in the cross. So when the world says to us, Why does God allow so much suffering? We can say, we don't know. But we know who does know. Our confidence is in the who, rather than the why, or the what, or the how, or the when. As you know, experts estimate that Only 95% of the oceans on our planet have been charted by, by us. So if we don't even know what lays below the ocean, it shouldn't surprise us that the reason for our suffering is still uncharted in this life. God knows what lies below the ocean depths. God sees what no human eye will see in the creatures that are down there. And God knows and he sees your suffering, and my trials. And he has purposes for those trials that are greater than we will ever know on this side. Somehow Job knew this. He had no Bible. He had no church. He had no cross. But his faith looked forward to how God would vindicate the suffering of his servant who trusted in him. God, the father, would subject his son, a better Job, to a far worse day than Job ever knew. This is how the father treated his son. And this is how God treats his friends. God doesn't just stand far off and simply allow Satan to do his damage. God drew near. God, in the person of his son, became a sufferer. Jesus revealed God's heart to sufferers by subjecting himself to the suffering of the cross. All who turn now from evil and fear God, who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, can know peace with God today. They can know the hope of forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. So if you don't know this God, I'd invite you to turn to him today, to fear him to know him, to know the one who suffered for you so that you could have hope. The one who always does what is right is a mystery to us. He doesn't answer all our questions now, but we can know in our suffering what it means to be called friends of God. And because of the son, we can be called friends of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who calls us friends. Well, it was a blessing to be the son of a theologian who knew a lot of facts and things about the Bible. I remember one time uh, leading that, that Bible study in my college dorm and someone asked a really tough question and I thought, well, we're just going to call my dad on this one. Um, so we put him on speakerphone and asked him the question. We can't do that today with God. We can't FaceTime him or put him on speakerphone now. But he has given us what we need to walk by faith. He has given us himself. So who knows why God allows suffering? Again, we don't know the why. But because of Christ, we know the who. Is that enough for you today? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have cursed you in our hearts, for the times that we have blamed you for our trials and our suffering. Lord, you know that why we often fall into that sin, is because we recognize that you are sovereign, that everything that we have comes from your hand, the good and the bad. But Lord, instead of standing as judge over you, help us instead to trust your unseen purposes in our lives. Lord, we only see the ugly side of the tapestry that you're weaving. But Lord, help us to trust that you know what you're doing and that you will one day return and make all things new. So, Lord, help us to trust in your mysterious way and that behind your frowning providence, you hide your smiling face. Lord, in our suffering, help us to remember the suffering of our brother, our sovereign, our king, Mm. our savior, Jesus, Lord. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.